Section 5 of Chapter 25 of A History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 25, Section 5. Animated by such feelings as these, a party in the upper house was eager to take the earliest opportunity of making a stand. On the 4th of April the second reading was moved. Near a hundred lords were present. Somers, whose serene wisdom and persuasive eloquence had seldom been more needed, was confined to his room by illness, and his place on the woolsack was supplied by the Earl of Bridgewater. Several orators, both Whig and Tory, objected to proceeding farther, but the chiefs of both parties thought it better to try the almost hopeless experiment of committing the bill and sending it back amended to the Commons. The second reading was carried by seventy votes to twenty-three. It was remarked that both Portland and Albemarle voted in the majority. In the committee and on the third reading, several amendments were proposed and carried. Wharton, the boldest and most active of the Whig peers, and the Lord Privy Seal Lonsdale, one of the most moderate and reasonable of the Tories, took the lead and were strenuously supported by the Lord President Pembroke and by the Archbishop of Canterbury, who seems on this occasion to have a little forgotten his habitual sobriety and caution. Two natural sons of Charles the Second, Richmond and Southampton, who had strong personal reasons for disliking resumption bills, were zealous on the same side. No peer, however, as far as can now be discovered, ventured to defend the way in which William had disposed of his Irish domains. The provisions which annulled the grants of those domains were left untouched, but the words of which the effect was to vest in the parliamentary trustees' property which had never been forfeited to the king and had never been given away by him were altered, and the clauses by which estates and sums of money were, in defiance of constitutional principle and of immemorial practice, bestowed on persons who were favourites of the commons, were so far modified as to be, in form, somewhat less exceptionable. The bill, improved by these changes, was sent down by two judges to the lower house. The lower house was all in a flame. There was now no difference of opinion there. Even those members who thought that the resumption bill and the land tax bill ought not to have been tacked together, yet felt that, since these bills had been tacked together, it was impossible to agree to the amendments made by the Lords without surrendering one of the most precious privileges of the Commons. The amendments were rejected without one dissentient voice. It was resolved that a conference should be demanded and the gentlemen who were to manage the conference were instructed to say merely that the upper house had no right to alter a money bill, 
that the point had long been settled and was too clear for argument that they should leave the bill with the lords and that they should leave with the lords also the responsibility of stopping the supplies which were necessary for the public service several votes of menacing sound were passed at the same sitting it was monday the eighth of april tuesday the ninth was allowed to the other house for reflection and repentance it was resolved that on the wednesday morning the question of the irish forfeitures should again be taken into consideration and that every member who was in town should be then in his place on peril of the highest displeasure of the house it was moved and carried that every privy councillor who had been concerned in procuring or passing any exorbitant grant for his own benefit had been guilty of a high crime and misdemeanour lest the courtiers should flatter themselves that this was meant to be a mere abstract proposition it was ordered that a list of the members of the privy council should be laid on the table as it was thought not improbable that the crisis might end in an appeal to the constituent bodies nothing was omitted which could excite out of doors a feeling in favour of the bill the speaker was directed to print and publish the report signed by the four commissioners not accompanied as in common justice it ought to have been by the protest of the three dissentients but accompanied by several extracts from the journals which were thought likely to produce an impression favourable in the house and unfavourable to the court all these resolutions passed without any division and without as far as appears any debate there was indeed much speaking but all on one side seymour harley howe harcourt shower musgrave declaimed one after the other about the obstinacy of the other house the alarming state of the country the dangers which threatened the public peace and the public credit if it was said none but englishmen sat in the parliament and in the council we might hope that they would relent at the thought of the calamities which impend over england but we have to deal with men who are not englishmen with men who consider this country as their own only for evil as their property not as their home who when they have gorged themselves with our wealth will without one uneasy feeling leave us sunk in bankruptcy distracted by faction exposed without defence to invasion a new war said one of these orators a new war as long as bloody and as costly as the last would do less mischief than has been done by the introduction of that batch of dutchmen among the barons of the realm another was so absurd as to call on the house to declare that whoever should advise a dissolution would be guilty of high treason a third gave utterance to a sentiment which it is difficult to understand how any assembly of civilized and christian men even in a moment of strong excitement 
should have heard without horror. They object to tacking, do they? Let them take care that they do not provoke us to tack in earnest. How would they like to have bills of supply with bills of attainder tacked to them? This atrocious threat, worthy of the tribune of the French convention in the worst days of the Jacobin tyranny, seems to have been passed unreprehended. It was meant, such at least was the impression at the Dutch embassy, to intimidate Summers. He was confined by illness. He had been unable to take any part in the proceedings of the Lords, and he had privately blamed them for engaging in a conflict in which he justly thought that they could not be victorious. Nevertheless, the Tory leaders hoped that they might be able to direct against him the whole force of the storm which they had raised. Seymour, in particular, encouraged by the wild and almost savage temper of his hearers, harangued with rancorous violence against the wisdom and the virtue which presented the strongest contrast to his own turbulence, insolence, faithlessness, and rapacity. No doubt, he said, the Lord Chancellor was a man of parts. Anybody might be glad to have for counsel so acute and eloquent an advocate. But a very good advocate might be a very bad minister, and of all the ministers who had brought the kingdom into difficulties, this plausible, fair-spoken person was the most dangerous. Nor was the old reprobate ashamed to add that he was afraid that his lordship was no better than a hobbist in religion. After a long sitting the members separated, but they reassembled early on the morning of the following day, Tuesday the ninth of April. A conference was held, and Seymour, as chief manager for the Commons, returned the bill and the amendments to the peer in the manner which had been prescribed to him. From the painted chamber he went back to the lower house and reported what had passed. If, he said, I may venture to judge by the looks and manner of their lordships, all will go right. But... Within half an hour evil tidings came through the court of requests and the lobbies. The lords had divided on the question whether they would adhere to their amendments. Forty-seven had voted for adhering, and thirty-four for giving way. The House of Commons broke up with gloomy looks, and in great agitation. All London looked forward to the next day with painful forebodings. The general feeling was in favour of the bill. It was rumoured that the majority which had determined to stand by the amendments had been swollen by several prelates, by several of the illegitimate sons of Charles the Second, and by several needy and greedy courtiers. The cry in all the public places of resort was that the nation would be ruined by the three B's bishops, bastards, and beggars. On Wednesday the 10th, at length, the contest came to a decisive issue. Both houses were early crowded. The lords demanded a conference. It was held, 
and Pembroke delivered back to Seymour the bill and the amendments, together with a paper containing a concise but luminous and forcible exposition of the grounds on which the Lords conceived themselves to be acting in a constitutional and strictly defensive manner. This paper was read at the bar, but whatever effect it may now produce on a dispassionate student of history, it produced none on the thick ranks of country gentlemen. It was instantly resolved that the bill should again be sent back to the Lords, with a peremptory announcement that the Commons' determination was unalterable. The Lords again took the amendments into consideration. During the last forty-eight hours great exertions had been made in various quarters to avert a complete rupture between the houses. The statesmen of the Junto were far too wise not to see that it would be madness to consider the struggle longer. It was indeed necessary, unless the kings and the lords were to be of as little weight in the state as in 1648, unless the house was not merely to exercise a general control over the government, but to be, as in the days of the rump, itself the whole government, the sole legislative chamber, the fountain from which were to flow all the favours which had hitherto been in the gift of the crown, that a determined stand should be made. But, in order that such a stand might be successful, the ground must be carefully selected, for a defeat might be fatal. The Lords must wait for some occasion on which their privileges would be bound up with the privileges of all Englishmen, for some occasion on which the constituent bodies would, if an appeal were made to them, disavow the acts of the representative body, and this was not such an occasion. The enlightened and large-minded few considered tacking as a practice so pernicious that it would be justified only by an emergency which would justify a resort to physical force. But in the many, tacking, when employed for a popular end, excited little or no disapprobation. The public, which seldom troubles itself with nice distinctions, could not be made to understand that the question at issue was any other than this, whether a sum which was vulgarly estimated at millions, and which undoubtedly amounted to some hundreds of thousands, should be employed in paying the debts of the state and alleviating the load of taxation, or in making Dutchmen, who were already too rich, still richer. It was evident that on that question the Lords could not hope to have the country with them, and that, if a general election took place while that question was unsettled, the new House of Commons would be even more mutinous and impractical than the present House. Summers, in his sick chamber, had given this opinion. Orford had voted for the bill in every stage. Montague, though no longer a minister, had obtained admission to the royal closet, and had strongly represented to the king the dangers which threatened the state. The king had at length consented to let it be understood 
that he considered the passing of the bill as on the whole the less of two great evils. It was soon clear that the temper of the peers had undergone a considerable alteration since the preceding day. Scarcely any, indeed, changed sides, but not a few abstained from voting. Wharton, who had at first spoken powerfully for the amendments, left town for Newmarket. On the other hand, some lords who had not yet taken their part came down to give a healing vote. Among them were the two persons to whom the education of the young heir apparent had been entrusted, Marlborough and Burnet. Marlborough showed his usual prudence. He had remained neutral, while by taking a part he must have offended either the House of Commons or the King. He took a part as soon as he saw that it was possible to please both. Burnet, alarmed for the public peace, was in a state of great excitement, and, as was usual with him when in such a state, forgot dignity and decorum, called out stuff in a very audible voice while a noble lord was haranguing in favour of the amendments, and was in great danger of being reprimanded at the bar or delivered over to Black Rod. The motion on which the division took place was that the House do adhere to the amendments. There were forty contents and thirty-seven not-contents. Proxies were called, and the numbers were found to be exactly even. In the House of Lords there is no casting vote. When the numbers are even, the non-contents have it. The motion to adhere had therefore been negatived. But this was not enough. It was necessary that an affirmative resolution should be moved to the effect that the House agreed to the bill without amendments. And if the numbers should again be equal, this motion would also be lost. It was an anxious moment. Fortunately, the primate's heart failed him. He had obstinately fought the battle down to the last stage, but he probably felt it was no light thing to take on himself and to bring on his order the responsibility of throwing the whole kingdom into confusion. He started up and hurried out of the house, beckoning to some of his brethren. His brethren followed him with a prompt obedience, which, serious as the crisis was, caused no small merriment. In consequence of this defection, the motion to agree was carried by a majority of five. Meanwhile the members of the other house had been impatiently waiting for news, and had been alternately elated and depressed by the reports which followed one another in rapid succession. At first it was confidently expected that the peers would yield, and there was general good humour. Then came intelligence that the majority of the peers present had voted for adhering to the amendments. I believe, so Vernon wrote the next day, I believe there was not one man in the house that did not think the nation ruined. The lobbies were cleared, the back doors were locked, the keys were laid on the table, 
the sergeant-at-arms was directed to take his post at the front door and to suffer no member to withdraw an awful interval followed during which the angry passions of the assembly seemed to be subdued by terror some of the leaders of the opposition men of grave character and of large property stood aghast at finding that they were engaged they scarcely knew how in a conflict such as they had not at all expected in a conflict in which they could be victorious only at the expense of the peace and order of society even seymour was sobered by the greatness and nearness of the danger even howe thought it advisable to hold conciliatory language it was no time he said for wrangling court party and country party were englishmen alike their duty was to forget all past grievances and to cooperate heartily for the purpose of saving the country in a moment all was changed a message from the lords was announced it was a message which lightened many hearts the bill had been passed without amendments the leading malcontents who a few minutes before scared by finding that their violence had brought on a crisis for which they were not prepared had talked about the duty of mutual forgiveness and close union instantly became again as rancorous as ever one danger they said was over so far well but it was the duty of the representatives of the people to take such steps as might make it impossible that there should ever again be such danger every adviser of the crown who had been concerned in the procuring or passing of any exorbitant grant ought to be excluded from all access to the royal ear a list of the privy councillors furnished in conformity with the order made two days before was on the table that list the clerk was ordered to read prince george of denmark and the archbishop of canterbury passed without remark but as soon as the chancellor's name had been pronounced the rage of his enemies broke forth twice already in the course of that stormy session they had attempted to ruin his fame and his fortunes and twice his innocence and his calm fortitude had confounded all their politics perhaps in the state of excitement to which the house had been wrought up a third attack on him might be successful orator after orator declaimed against him he was the great offender he was responsible for all the grievances of which the nation complained he had obtained exorbitant grants for himself he had defended the exorbitant grants obtained by others he had not indeed been able in the late debates to raise his own voice against the just demands of the nation but it might well be suspected that he had in secret prompted the ungracious answer of the king and encouraged the pertinacious resistance of the lords sir john levison gower a noisy and acrimonious tory called for impeachment 
but musgrave an abler and more experienced politician saw that if the imputations which the opposition had been in the habit of throwing on the chancellor were exhibited with the precision of a legal charge their futility would excite universal derision and thought it more expedient to move that the house should without assigning any reason request the king to remove lord somers from his majesty's councils and presence for ever cowper defended his persecuted friend with great eloquence and effect and he was warmly supported by many members who had been zealous for the resumption of the irish grants only a hundred and six members went into the lobby with musgrave a hundred and sixty-seven voted against him such a division in such a house of commons and on such a day is sufficient evidence of the respect which the great qualities of somers had extorted even from his political enemies end of section five